Shinobi, and we are bringing you Block Digest episode 243 at block height 656,012, Sunday, October 8th. So, Janine, which quantum reality are you living in? Um, I'm living in the one where I still don't really care who wins the election because the underlying system hasn't changed fundamentally. Um, but it is still hilarious to uh, have the election day extended into election week and possibly election month. Oh, yeah, it's going to be real fun. But let's My... just say I, I really won't be bothered too much if if Biden is actually certified a winner, because then somebody I know has to get a giant fake like orange tan. Because he made a bet with some buddies. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, uh, the safest bet is to just bet that we all lose. And uh, anybody who bet that won. Yep. I mean, I, I am kind of terrified at this point that no matter what happens, no matter how court proceedings go, no matter what verifiable evidence is put forth that a large chunk of people are just going to silo off into their own parallel realities and just completely refuse to accept an outcome. Including the candidates themselves. <laughs> yep. I mean, uh, I have to say the, uh, the uh, um, labels that Twitter was putting on some tweets were kind of <laughs> interesting. <laughs> well, it's just kind of weird to me that that was going on under the ostenses of um, nobody is allowed to claim victory until something is certified. But then, you know, the other guy is kind of doing a lot of that and not getting uh, called out on anything despite a lot of outstanding, you know, unfinalized votes. So that that's kind of odd. Yeah, um, I mean, this is what happens when you uh, <laughs> when you have uh, elections and then a bunch of people on social media, especially one person who is not afraid to use social media to the full extent possible to share his every thought, um, you get this problem where, you know, just every everybody is claiming a result and claiming to be an authority on the result and this is what happens when you have people vying for power yep who's your oracle i have to uh, yeah well that is a great question actually considering so many people still want to you know put oracles and blockchains together um this should be <laughs> this should be a lesson in how difficult that is um, 
but I have to say I do find it hilarious. Uh, I think the funniest thing of all is the name collision <laughs> incident that happened uh, where the uh, campaign, I, I don't know exactly what it was supposed to be for because I still didn't watch it, but I find it hilarious, the, the campaign uh, event where Giuliani was supposed to speak ended up being in the parking lot of a landscaping company because they mixed up Four Seasons, the landscaping company, and Four Seasons Hotel. Like, that is the epitome of, like, mm, Oracle issues, naming collision, everything. Uh, I mean, if that's what happened, that is, I'm not going to lie, pretty hilarious, but... Uh, oh, is that another thing that did not happen? No, it's that there is a really weird um, thing as far as that landscaping company and that name where there's actually a shit ton of them all over the country and all of them make what look like very structured donations to different Democratic campaigns. So oh, it's that's kind of weird. Wait, so you're telling me they actually chose to have a thing at the landscaping company? That's even weirder. I mean, potentially from what it looks like, because it looks like very weird donation structuring. And like, I don't want to make any definitive claims on anything at this point, given how batshit insane information flow is back and forth. But I actually dug in and verified that kind of pattern in donations with all of these companies with the same rough names all across the country. And it's really fucking weird. Yeah, I mean, like the thing that I posted after election day, if we can call it that, was um, David Bowie's I'm Afraid of Americans because seriously, like... Everyone scares me. Everyone tweeting about the election just scares me. The way that they're like shouting at each other or losing their minds or crying. And it's like, guys, seriously, they're fundamentally nothing has changed. Like, I feel like everyone, even the people who did not vote for Obama, like they've just forgotten that the Democrats, the Democratic Party, and the Obama administration, they did a bunch of really awful shit. Like, it's just completely skated over people's minds. And I think part of the problem and the reason that happened is because, um, well, the terrible shit that he was doing was mostly overseas to a great extent. And so, you know, it's people over there we don't care about them and we've forgotten about them but some of us still remember and some of us are not expecting anything better from the guy who was literally the vice president under that administration like how the hell do you think anything is going to be different like anyone who anyone who looks back on the obama years with like rosy glasses i feel like it's going to be a similar thing with Bala Harris, where they're thinking so much about the fact that, oh, look, representation, and they're completely forgetting that having diversity in your uh, war criminals is not exactly a goal to aspire to, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. One thing that just worries me is, like, 
I see a lot of people who are more concerned with, um, I want my outcome rather than let's see what the legitimate outcome was. And that's what it was. And that really is what worries me more than anything. Like, you know, I'll say it. I, I voted for Trump again this time. If legitimate tabulation in this going through courts equals he lost, that's what happened. But Wait, it, it kind you, of worried so you lied yeah, to me. Yeah. You were voting for Keck. Yeah, I you lied. lied to me. Yes, I did. But the, the, the point is, though, it's like, you know what I mean? The concern should be, did this process happen legitimately? Not my outcome at all costs. And that's what really worries me is people sliding into the mindset of my outcome, no matter what. I mean, well, from my position, none of this is legitimate because I'm, I'm a voluntarist. So um, elections are all not legitimate <laughs> in my perspective. And so squabbling over the legitimate new dictator is uh, kind of just, like I said, scary this this all just uh, it's it's never going to go away nothing's changed and people are losing their minds i know but it's just you know like participating in it ostensibly you are going okay this is the process and it, it just really scares me how many people participate and then turn around and it's like i just want my outcome like, it's not about was the process fucked with, distorted. It's just, I want my outcome. And that's really, that's when when these kinds of systems start getting to the real scary point of it, it, it's just going to turn into a fight eventually. Yeah, I mean, that 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 is, uh, um, <laughs> that is the underbelly of all politics and uh the only difference is now we're actually seeing some of it uh and they're and they're fighting over that underbelly so um yeah uh i mean my uh so something i learned which i did not know was a thing and after this i think we should stop talking about the election because seriously it's so <laughs> um so not bitcoin but um something that i learned over this past week is that like I've never, ref whenever I've referred to previous presidents in the U.S. or any other country where they have this president position, I've always referred to them as like former President X, or uh, you know, depending on the structure of the sentence, then President. Like I'm clearly distinguishing it as being someone who is a president in the past, and I've recently been informed that because I was being confused by all of the people who were referring to Biden as President Biden. And I was like, but wait, he's not hes not vice president anymore. And I've since been told that once you become president, you get to keep the title for the rest of your life. And I'm like, seriously? <laughs> that is so confusing. Why do people do that? That makes no sense. Like, why? It's it's kind of like imagine like it's a it's a job. It's like the, the well, the claim is that the 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 role of a president it's a job. Like you're not being anointed or something. So the idea that like you've done your job, you've now left and you're still being referred to by your previous job title sounds very strange to me. It's like, I don't know, give an example, 
I, not that you would ever want to do this, but uh, it's like being elected president of the Bitcoin Foundation, and then you leave the Bitcoin Foundation, and then you still get referred to as the president of the Bitcoin Foundation for the rest of your life. Like, it makes no sense to me. Why do people do this? It just really like drives home that the presidency and just a lot of government positions in general are not actual jobs. Like, they literally think that they are like like royalty or some kind of priesthood or something where you get a title and once you have it you always have it i motion that if biden is certified winner we should change that for trump to president in exile (laughs) well i do believe um i i mean i don't know if this is true either but honestly like I, i don't trust anything i'm seeing about any of this right now but um there was some uh, news outlet that had a quote uh, attributed to the Biden campaign where they said something like, oh, you know, if he, if he doesn't want to leave the White House, uh, the Secret Service are at liberty to eject trespassers. <laughs> and so like, wow, you're, you're really going for that card, aren't you? Yep, this is going to get very reality TV. You are all trespassers on my sanity. Get out. I don't think they're going to obey that court order. But um, all right, all right, though. We, we, we need to shift topics or we're going to be talking about this for the next 10 minutes. Alrighty. So I'm sure everybody listening by now has seen the lightning pool um, liquidity market uh, proposal dropped by lightning labs. And uh, yeah, uh, I have pretty much spent the last week pouring through this paper and thinking about this. And really, um, this is probably one of the biggest pieces of infrastructure um, this well thought out developed for the Lightning Network, um, period. Um, and this this is going to be a monumental part of that network going forward um so in in the shortest terms possible um they created this idea um called a shadow chain and pretty much the the gist of that is think of it like a virtual blockchain on top of the bitcoin blockchain that that's actually taking up block space confirming transactions um And the whole idea is to enter this shadow chain. Um, It has an operator. And what you would do is create a two of two multi-sig with that operator, um, get a pre-signed transaction to withdraw your funds after a timeout, and then load that wallet. And what this effectively does is create an account on this shadow chain. And the whole idea behind this is to effectively coordinate finding um, incoming liquidity on the Lightning Network. And they also create this concept of a channel lease. And so it's pretty much just like a normal um, Lightning channel, except um, instead of just the relative time delay to allow um, penalty responses, there is also an absolute um, CLTV time delay to pretty much guarantee that if somebody opens a channel lease with you, 
um, that's guaranteed to be there um, for as long as that CLTV timeout. And so pretty much with these two main pieces, um, constructed a non-custodial um, distributed auction block where people off-chain um, in, in this shadow chain construct um, can pretty much put in um, bids in order to pay a, a small premium on the overall amount of capital that would be locked up with you um, to have a channel lease open to them. And so this is just perfect in the sense of two core reasons. Um, one, selling channel leases like this allows routing nodes to have a lot more predictable um, income for locking up their liquidity that isn't correlated to whether they're processing payments or not. And then two, um, it is a massive, massive benefit versus things like Breeze Wallet or Phoenix Wallet, where the actual wallet operator has to come up with receiving capital for you and put all of that into a channel locked up to you. Um, so that type of I can receive right away um, Lightning Wallet is really expensive for those providers to, to pay for. Well, this kind of marketplace allows them to just pay a small premium on the capital available to users and have some other um, routing node on the, the network open that channel with them. So it makes these types of, of wallets and products a lot cheaper for the, the operator to bootstrap, but it's also a huge improvement and, um, versus like just the, the trust model of something like Breeze, where they open the channel with you. Um, they are also functioning as your watchtower. Um, you know, if you just open a, a, a wallet there and you don't already have funds to front load in your channel, then they are always in a position where they have an original channel state with all the money on their side. And they're also the provider of all these other security guarantees. And so it's just overall, like the, the structure of this is, is just really brilliant in terms of distributing the, the ability to solicit and gain access to receiving liquidity without having to go to big centralized points or, or liquidity providers for that. And it really even goes so far into, um, I think where this can build in the long term um, is going to be so important. Um, because what, what they've done here with this kind of um, marketplace auction style matching, um, I think with more of a reputation um, dynamic built in, this is also a perfect thing for solving some um, issues that would crop up in channel factories, um, such as you know having a, a bond or, or a reputation or some factor where I have a high degree of confidence if I get into a channel factory with, with all these other people, they are not going to be disruptive. They are not going to force things onto chain and cost people money um, just to be a dickhead. And I feel like this kind of abstract um, you know, market design here would be the perfect type of solution to throw at that problem as well. And you know, really the the only real structural or architectural issues I can think of in this is um, the minimum amounts 
um, that could be leased in channels obviously um, have to be cost effective on chain. So if dust outputs or the, the minimum viable economically um, output value on chain gets really high, then this system starts to run in those concerns. And then also the fact that things are pretty much just batch settled um, for an auction block in transactions directly on chain. So this shadow chain operator, the whole idea is they receive bids at the end of a, a bid block. They look at everything, match them, and then send around a transaction to everybody in that block to sign it with their two of two account values and then actually pay fees or premiums to people opening leases to you and then to actually open those channel leases. And, you know, at my first kind of thought there was spamming things on chain um, is probably not the most scalable thing. But really thinking about it, um, you know, if you try to open a, a channel somewhere to make money and it's not making you money, you're going to be doing those on-chain operations anyway, um, just to try to find the best place to allocate that money. And so really this kind of marketplace, it doesn't really change that dynamic with block space at all. It just hopefully will make it a lot more efficient. So you might even be doing this, um, these on-chain operations even less because this whole auction system allows you to find the, those, um, those places you want to be because they'll make you money a lot more efficiently. And so like, really th this is a massive um, you know, badass piece of infrastructure and a protocol from it out of Lightning Labs. And honestly, this is, I think, the the coolest thing I've seen developed for the Lightning Network um, since it launched. Like, period. Like, the, this is going to be so fucking valuable in the long term. Ooh. This is awesome. I do believe we have two more awesome things related to to the Lightning Network lined up. Yeah, um, so this is something um, you found, so I'm not sure what, uh, if you may see the same significance as me, but it appears that a podcasting index site, um, and I'm not sure everyone who runs it, but Adam Curie seems to be the main guy, and he recently posted a video regarding an update that they've been planning to make to the index, which is uh, in the video, he kind of presents a summary document that um, states their mission as why free podcasting from corporate control, how integrate decentralized content with decentralized money, and what build a self-sustaining ecosystem for podcasting. And he then scrolls down to a different slide titled Podcast Lightning Value for Value Stack and says that this will uh, basically be an integration of the Lightning Network um, into the index under a pledge model, so not a play, where the Lightning payment that people can make um, as, you know, kind of a tip to the podcaster is split into three parts, or at least three parts 
uh, 98% of the payment goes to the podcaster, 1% goes to the application developer, and I'm assuming he means Sphinx here because the Sphinx payment widget is on the site and it allows you to accept Bitcoin payments over Lightning to your website. And then the remaining 1% goes to the podcast index wallet in exchange for, I assume, being the aggregator and uh, surfacing the podcast content to you to find. And so um, he also said that as a podcaster, you can you would be able to at some point, I don't know if, how much of this is built out, but he says that you could further split um, the 98% into, you know, going to your host, or maybe if you want to have the payment automatically split off to go to anyone working for you, like your video editor or audio, well, in this case, it would be audio engineer. Um, I guess you could do that. And he then shows a demo of the process and action and some of the uh, Sphinx UI and uh, how you can adjust the amount you pay. And the UX seems pretty smooth, and he kind of shows that there's a testing group that's uh, been helping him with this. And towards the end of the video, he says that he will be doing a further demo, uh, demo, demo and webinar tomorrow on November 9th, which will probably have already happened by the time you're hearing this episode, unless you're listening live. But yeah, it sounds interesting because this is basically... Um, I mean, there's been a few streaming money type applications, like uh, the first one was um, uh, Lightning Payments, or actually originally I think it was just Bitcoin Payments for live streaming video um, before where you paid, I think, based on the amount of the video that you watched or the number of videos or something like that. Um, so this isn't the first thing to do this, but I think it's actually a really good fit because... Um, podcasting is growing in popularity and I think more and more people are moving away from video just because I mean you know multitask yeah so I mean this seems like a really good fit I'm not as familiar with this site in particular but I do see it as cool that someone is developing applications to do you know, splitting off the payments automatically, and it seems to be relatively smooth. I'd like to see, like, the configuration options for that in terms of, like, how you actually, uh, like, how how much, uh, how many custom paths you can make, um, but that would be really cool to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I'm really kind of skeptical in the long term of Lightning really being good for native micro payments but you know as long as people consider that and potential routes to bolt more stuff on top like stuff like this is awesome like whether it happens on lightning natively or some layer on top like micro payments for this type of content distribution is like this is how you actually unfuck journalism um to really just put it bluntly. I mean, it's it's pretty much either find a way to monetize things yourself, which can be very, very hard these days, depending on the types of things you say, or um, just shut up about those things and go work at some bullshit media publication. Yeah, I really need to write a follow-up document for 
revision control journalism to include a bunch of this stuff is now it's like i only wrote the last document in 2018 and it's already almost outdated so i need to do that soon i think you're gonna have to rewrite faster and faster the more uh things like this get built out like <laughs> i mean i i've been ranting all year that we are in a bitcoin development renaissance and i think this new lightning pool proposal um should demonstrate that definitively it's not just little little chips being added at the edges like that too in particular it's just think about the synergy with something like this like receiving money over lightning has been a big pain without service providers or liquidity providers because where where do you get the incoming liquidity from well a nice distributed system like that would work very well if you know streaming platforms like this really start picking up Alrighty, are we ready What's next Wizkid nadav kohen solves another problem again i actually think an episode or two ago, I literally just joked about um, as long as he solves this exact problem, then cool things will happen. And look, he did. <laughs> um, so um, Nadav posted on the, the Shirt Bits blog, um, let's say eight, four days ago at this point, a scheme for transferring um, DLCs that are inside lightning channels um, one hop through the lightning network so um let's say alice and bob have a dlc uh if carol wants to engage in that dlc take over bob's end and also happens to have a channel open with alice um then you can atomically kind of just move that dlc output from alice and bob's channel to alice and carol and it's actually a really um elegant setup in terms of just trust model and um i'll explain the uh the weird um edge case here that kind of makes this really elegant in my mind but effectively what would happen is um alice and bob and alice and carol um create a new htlc output in each of their channels and what alice and bob do is effectively move the DLC that they have on top of that HTLC so that you have a pre-image um, which would let a success transaction go through and close the DLC and give Bob his money back. And then you have a time-locked um, failure transaction um, which would just reopen the DLC as it was if the transfer failed. And then between Alice and Carol, um, you do the opposite. Um, you would have a success transaction with the pre-image that opens the same DLC that Alice and Bob had um, between Alice and Carol and a time-locked um, uh, timeout path that would just give Carol her money back. And the idea here is pretty much um, either Bob or Carol, um, really doesn't matter, um, generates the pre-image um, for this HTLC that opens and closes a, a DLC. And really, um, hold on, let me, let me decombobulate my head for a second. 
so so pretty much the idea here is um whoever generated the hash would give it to alice um who would then um settle out that side and pass the pre-image on to the other side and settle that out um and this creates a, a nice situation here in terms of um, execution paths with one weird case. So in a success um, situation, um, everything works out. Bob and Alice close their DLC and Alice and Carol open one um, to replace the one that Alice had with Bob and everything goes happy. Um, the timeout execution, if things do not go through, then timeout, and this would just get updated in channel. Um, Bob's DLC remains open, and Carol gets her money back in her full control in the channel. And now the, the bad scenario here, um, on the timeout transaction, that for Bob would reopen his DLC, and for Carol would give her her money back, um, the pre-image for the success path that closes Bob's DLC and opens one for Carol um, has a penalty path linked to that pre-image. And so the idea here is, let's say Bob wants to, um, you know, close things out, um, let that time out, and then... Um, pretty much cheat with Carol and share the pre-image so that uh, one party can close theirs out as a transfer, um, but the other party can, you know, just not open things and you just leave Alice screwed here. Um, whoever generated the pre-image pretty much um, and tries to do that gets all of the money in the DLC um, confiscated. And so, Alice um, in this situation winds up with the correct operation on one side and gets a free payout um, from the other. And now the weird screwy part is what if, um, you know, Alice got the pre-image from one side and didn't reveal it to the other. So let's say she closes out um, the DLC with Bob and doesn't open one with Alice. Or, or vice versa, um, keeps the, uh, the contract with Bob open, but also opens one with Carol. Um, there's not really a problem here because Bob was always open to the possibility this fails and he's stuck in his contract. And Carol specifically wants to start this contract no matter what. So effectively, um, th there's no real way that that can go wrong in terms of either Bob or Carol um, did not have their side execute in a way that they fully expected it could execute. And so, um, yeah, this is a really nice structure in terms of market dynamics between makers and takers. I mean, you know, in any kind of uh, market with real liquidity, there's probably going to be a lot of connections to big makers. And this kind of construct allows them to just swap positions between different takers um, if one of them wants to exit. And, you know, it's definitely a lot of things to think through in terms of um, network topology and market topology. But in principle, um, as long as there is 
direct paths on the Lightning Network where people want to trade positions off between each other. Um, in principle, I don't see any reason why you couldn't theoretically route something like this longer than just a single hop. But, you know, even thinking through that whole basket of eggs, like this is still incredibly useful in just the sense of a single hop. People can trade off their positions now and not just be stuck with them. So what problem should I joke that Nadav is just going to magically figure out? Because so far we're on the joke. Um, two weeks later, it's solved. Um, timetable. Um, he could solve the Bitcoin privacy debate. Tall order, but you know what? I'm sure Nadav can handle it. <laughs> I hope so. Alrighty. So this next one is just a little, little chuckle, a little, a little joke, um, a little. How could anybody have ever doubted Vitalik Buterin, guys, dude? The first like baby step, like phase zero into the like the first part of the the ten part plan to eventually deploy Ethereum 2.0. It's live, guys. It's live. Ethereum 2.0 is here. You can't call anybody a scammer anymore, cause cause that's a headline somewhere. Honestly, I I don't know actually if you're joking or not. Is Ethereum 2.0 here or not? <laughs> Phase zero in in step one of the ten part plan to eventually fully roll it out is. Um, would you like to know what that actually means? Um, I'm sure you're going to attempt to tell me what it means. I don't know if we're ever going to know what it means. It's a one way smart contract on Ethereum 1.0 that lets you put 32 ether into it and then start staking. And it's a one-way token. Um, you can't get it out for two years at least. Oh, and if for any second at any point in time you go offline and don't sign off on the, the staking stuff properly, it starts taking your money away. Who would not want to put their 32 ETH into a completely useless one-way smart contract where if their internet fucks up for even an instant, they start losing money? I mean, come on. Who wouldn't want to take that two-year bet? Am I right? Well, I feel like anyone who still has 32 ETH would probably be stupid enough to put in 32 ETH. Who who does ha do, do you have to have exactly 32 ETH? What happens if you have less? What happens if you're not a meth whale? Um, from my understanding, no bueno. Um, that's the required collateral to stake. So how how much is that again? Ethereum is worth what now? Hundred something dollars? What is it? I couldn't tell you. I mean, that's not a ton of money, but seriously, if you have 32 ETH, you should get rid of it as soon as possible. That's, like, insane. I can't imagine even having one ETH or a percentage of an ETH. Yeah. Stupid is as stupid does. But, I mean, um, yeah, so this, like, uh, this, like, lower bound of 30... You have to have 32, so they... I mean, what they they don't they don't want people with less to be stakers, or what what is the uh, what's the reasoning behind thirty two? Why is thirty two the magic number? Vitalik said so. So I mean, twenty one million is like the magic number in Bitcoin, where we don't really know why it was twenty one, but we do have this kind of like this like quasi explanation where it's based on you know satoshi said so yeah 
Well, there's this like calculation of like 21 million or almost 21 million equals, you know, how how many Bitcoin would, you know, come out uh, over a day and then multiply the days, blah, 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 number of years. And that was like the number of years that Satoshi thought was good to have the have the supply increase over. Uh, so is there any kind of even quasi explanation for 32 at all? Or is it just pull the number out of my hat? Um, there might be, but I literally didn't care enough to investigate. This is solely on the news desk to laugh at how stupid this is, that that's the whole point. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't understand why you would have this lower bound of 32. Like, I feel like the, because, you know, but <laughs> there there is various arguments of proof of stake not being uh decentralized and how it's very easy to become centralized and so i feel like saying oh you have to have x amount of money or you can't be a staker um or at least you can't be an early staker at this point in time as the system is still being developed like that feels very gatekeepy it feels like a uh, rich get richer kind of uh plan well i mean that's the whole point of proof of stake isn't it well, I mean, oh no, no, wait. these it was, are it was carbon emissions, carbon emissions, right? Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that this is going to solve neither issue. <laughs> wink, wink. Don't. It's a strategy of don't eat the rich, give the rich more meth. <laughs> exactly. Let them eat meth. So. Are you ready for Shinobi's rant about how mining pools are enemies of Bitcoin? Sure. How are they enemies of Bitcoin? Well, uh, BitMEX Research um, on Election Day dropped a piece looking at the growth uh, of merge mining uh, over the entire history of the blockchain. And, you know, they it's... If, if, if you haven't listened to my rants on this topic a lot, um, it goes through the difference between um, regular merge mining where pools are actually um, validating and running nodes on that chain and blind merge mining where they just get paid in Bitcoin to commit to other people's blocks. Um, I think that blind merge mining just delays all of these bad things I'm going to get into. Um, it doesn't solve them. But the problem with regular merge mining is that starts distorting mining incentives in the sense of um, you have to look at the overall income of the miner and consider the percentage in Bitcoin or Namecoin or whatever other shitcoin is being mined and how that percentage distribution balances out. And ultimately, if this is really adopted widely, um, and used for tokens that maintain a decent amount of value, um, you start creating this situation where um, in order to be a profitable miner, you can't just mine Bitcoin. Um, you have to mine all of these other uh, merged mine shitcoins because if you're not, um, the people who do are going to outcompete you. And if the percentage of that income for miners um, that is not Bitcoin gets too big, um, you could have a situation where it's literally impossible to be a profitable miner unless you are also 
mining these other shit coins, validating these other shit coins, um, which effectively in, in a really backdoor way with incentives um, is the same thing as raising the block size um, of Bitcoin for miners. It's increasing the validation cost, which has more centralization pressure um, in order to be a profitable operation. And they kind of look at um, the two the two main ways, um, aside from shit like Veriblock, that uh, merged mine chains are committed to is either in an op return output or a uh, part of the script sig for the Coinbase. <clears throat> and so they've looked at uh, RSK and other identifiable um, op return commitments um, for these types of merged mine chains in the Coinbase through the entire history of the uh, chain. And they've found that something like 50% of the miners um, are now merge mining RSK. Um, and close to um, all of the miners are merge mining other um, unidentified op return chains. And obviously uh, 100% um, at this point are committing um, SegWit uh, witness commitments in the same area. Um, but kind of... Uh, a correlation I saw in here, um, if you look at the amount of miners committing to Namecoin um, in their Coinbase, there was a massive spike from around 2011 to 2014, where it peaked at around 80% of the network. And then between 2014 and 2016, crashed down to like 5 to 10%. Um, and now this correlates with two things. Um, one, um, a bunch of software bugs in Namecoin um, that might have created a lot of problems for mining pools. Um, but it also correlates with the massive crash in Namecoin's price, which rebounded during the 2017 bull market um, and also showed a correlation rebound up to 84% of the commitment scheme being present in Coinbase's that Namecoin uses. And so <clears throat> this is, this really is a deadly serious problem for Bitcoin in terms of attack vectors. Um, this can absolutely be used to start playing games with mining incentives, mining centralization pressures, and really um, you know, that could get fucked up. And the shitty thing about this is, um, it's happening. Um, there really is no way to stop miners who want to do this from finding some way to commit to a side chain in a Bitcoin block, because no matter what you do to make something they're using now invalid, they can just change the commitment structure to something else. And really it's, you know, I don't think there is a viable option here. Um, so long as tokens that want to do this maintain actual market demand, except to just find the most efficient way to do this, find the way to do this that adds the least centralization pressures, the least distortion to those markets, because ultimately, um, 
you know, it, it just looks more and more like, Hey, if the demand's there, they're going to do it. Um, so figure out ways for these coins to do these things in, in a manner that does not actively start damaging Bitcoin itself the same way that block size increases would, because, you know, <laughs> the entire existence of Bitcoin has just been mapped through this. And there is a pretty solid correlation between when it pumps and the money's there, it's going to happen. So in summary, how are mining pools the enemy of Bitcoin? Because this kind of dynamic is um, exactly how, you know, you keep miners coming to you. You look like a profitable or profitable, like lucrative trade-off um, rather than looking at things like replacing pools with protocols, things like better hash, like a fully de or decentralized mining pool like P2 pool. Because if people look to those and build those things and they are competitive, um, maybe miners leave and start mining that way instead. And most of these major mining pools are participating in this. Like I think there if 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 the effort is actually put into building mining protocols that decentralize pools like that and those are actually built out i think it is going to be a very stark incentive clash between mining pools and protocols like that in terms of how that's handled um how one responds to the other um i think that that is going to be a very bad area where those incentives just do not align um in a way that I think would benefit Bitcoin most. Mining pools, bad. And who else is an enemy of Bitcoin that has been causing a stir? Some dude. Some dude who had a lot of Bitcoin. He took it from people. Is that, is that, is that what we're talking about? I'm confused. I just, I just consumed mind-altering substances. I don't know what's going on. Well, I did not look into the story at all. I just saw people screaming about a large amount of Bitcoin moving and a bunch of media articles about how Silk Road money was moving and losing their minds. So Damn what it. actually happened here? I did have it right, and I just told everyone I'm high for no reason. Fuck. Well, um... So uh, TLDR, um, the U.S. government has um, civilly seized um, 69,000 Bitcoins that ultimately trace back to Silk Road when it was operational. And in their opinion, fits a pattern unlike um, any user or, or merchant or Silk Road employee withdrawal. Um, so they have characterized this as likely a theft of coins from Silk Road. Um, well, whoever this dummy is, um, I think it was in 2015, um, he sent 101 Bitcoins to BTCE, which um, for everyone who knows their history was a gigantic honeypot that dumped so much fun information into the, the government's hand. It's not even funny. And so um, I'm assuming because of that transaction, um, individual X 
whose identity is known to the government um, was determined to be in control of that address. So um, they have seized um, these coins, um, both under the assertion of being um, stolen property um, involved in a computer fraud and abuse act violation, as well as being um, proceeds from drug trades. So um, yeah, they have pretty much taken this money. It's ours now. And it's not really clear right now um, whether any kind of criminal charges or anything are going to be slapped on individual X. But um, given the fact that he just voluntarily gave this up, I think there is a very high likelihood um, that there was some kind of plea agreement involved here of take coins and don't send me to jail, please. But um, yeah, um, that's what actually happened. Um, everything on Twitter was a frenzy of digging through darknet market urban myths about a wallet that people were passing around with 70,000 Bitcoin on it and selling it for people to crack, which um, I find absolutely no reason to believe whatsoever. Fun. Now, the interesting question I'm going to ask, um, given where we are at in terms of market cycle and activity lately, is um, which individuals um, who probably wind up having close ties to, you know, bureaucrats and government officials end up buying said 69,000 Bitcoins. Um, Cause unless they uh, magically get new laws through Congress, um, they legally have to sell it. <laughs> yeah. And who's going to want to buy it? <laughs> I mean, I, I am not going to lie. Looking at this in totality, my first thought has just been like the government knew exactly who this dude was and that he had this and probably has for a very long time and just kind of left that there as a we'll, we'll grab that when we want it. And there goes Janine, AFK to never be seen again. A wild Janine appears. But yeah, it's like I I really think that they have just watched this guy for a while. Um, I feel very confident that that has a high probability of being what happened. And he, he just kind of was, was left there because, hey, when we want to, we're just going to take this now. Yep. So I am going to be keeping a very close eye on when this gets auctioned and who bought them and seeing what little threads pop up there because uh, I just can't get that suspicion out of my brain. Well, the fun part is that whoever does buy the Bitcoin is putting themselves in another scenario where the government knows that you have Bitcoin and exactly how much. Yeah, but they might be, you know, unofficially part of the government. So that doesn't matter because they're part of the, the club. Of course, if the government was smart at all, they would just keep it. <laughs> But they're not. <laughs> Thank God for that. Alrighty, though. I do believe some other dipshits um, recently got into some legal trouble for taking things that don't belong to them. Oh, yeah. Then um, they did more than that. Uh, so basically, this is a bit... Um, it's not new news. 
uh, but it was based on a blog post by Brian Krebs, so I saw it for that reason. And so basically on September 9th, so over almost two months ago, actually, uh, there was a superseding indictment for 21-year-old Jordan Milson and almost 20-year-old Kyle Bryan, or Kike. So it's one of those names where you can tell their parents probably chose a very fancy way of spelling an, an otherwise normal name, I think. Uh, but anyway, indictment filed in the District Court of Maryland for charges such as unauthorized access of and intentional damage to a protected computer, aggravated identity theft, and wire fraud conspiracy. And as Brian Krebs summarized in his post, they, quote, hijack social media and Bitcoin accounts using a mix of voice phishing or vishing uh, attacks and SIM swapping, uh, a form of fraud that involves bribing or tricking employees at mobile phone companies. And so there are, in this indictment, there are four individual victims included as being affected or targeted by them. Uh, one of them, individual victim four, is described as a resident of Rhode Island and an investor in digital currency. Uh, individual victim four had a social media account with a two-character username coveted by other social media users for its uniqueness and simplicity. I'm pretty sure it would not be that hard to figure out who that is <laughs> based on that description, but we will move along. Um, according to the indictment, uh, Milson, one of the uh, defendants, stole almost $17,000 worth of digital currency from individual victim three, another person. But that is not all. Uh, as of page four of the indictment, uh, it says that on or about June 26, 2019, Brian and others known and unknown to the grand jury uh, from outside the state of Maryland uh, anonymously called the Baltimore County Police Department and falsely reported that he, purporting to be a resident of the Milson family residence, had shot his father at the residence. The caller threatened to shoot himself and to shoot police officers if they attempted to confront him. This call was in fact a swatting attack in retaliation for Melson Fink to share the proceeds of the theft of digital currency as described further in this superseding indictment. So basically, I mean, I don't know if this was the thing that got them caught, but it, it sounds like it's a big part of what got them caught, which is that they had a fight over the money and he tried to swat his own conspirator <laughs> and that probably resulted in them getting caught um but the like uh this is not the first uh i mean this is one of the more interesting sim swapping cases that i think i've seen where they uh swatted their partner but or tried to get their partner swatted but um uh, this case is very similar in terms of, you know, the, uh, the goals and, uh, tactics, um, to that of Joel Ortis, uh, which we covered in episode 118. He was described in, uh, Motherboard as a prolific sim hijacker who mainly targeted victims to steal their cryptocurrency, but also to take over their social media accounts with the goal of selling them for Bitcoin. According to investigators, as well as people in the sim swapping community, Ortiz was a member of OG Users, a website where members trade valuable Instagram or Twitter accounts. And I didn't see a mention of that in particular in this case, but it may be at play if they were targeting someone specifically because they had a um, 
a high value social media account username. And then in episode 177, there was a, uh, that was when we talked about a former engineering lead at BitGo who has sim swapped and lost over $100,000 from his Coinbase account. And there was another customer from Coinbase who got sim swapped, I believe it was this year. Uh, we talked about in episode 208. Um, and they lost close to $90,000 worth of, uh, they don't ever, I think, I think in that case, they didn't say what, what, uh, cryptocurrency it was they just usually say digital currency um and then there was the sim swappers who got arrested in 2019 eric megs and declan harrington which we talked about in 199 and they had actually targeted the executives of cryptocurrency companies and one of their alleged goals was to again uh, acquire high value slash og social media accounts so it seems like um you know this is another case that is very similar to previous ones where they're not they're instead of you know targeting people to sim swap them in order to you know get maybe compromising information from them or just to scare them or some other thing which used to be the um the goal of people who did this it's now switched to wanting to acquire social media accounts that can be resold and also to get cryptocurrency. So I feel like this is going to keep happening because uh, fundamentally the uh, security model of phones has not really changed. There are still pieces of garbage. You don't actually uh, like that's kind of one of the odd things about stories where they say, oh, they stole someone's phone number. Um, I mean, fundamentally, your phone number is not something you own. You have literally no you have very little control over your phone number these cases indicate because they can just all you need is a low-wage employee at your phone company to be like yeah whatever i'll give it to someone else and that's about it like you you don't control your phone number phone numbers should not be treated as identifiers even though they are unfortunately so this is going to keep happening as long as people are using phones in ways that do not actually match the security model Phones should be like Tor endpoints <clears throat> where they also have a private public key relationship as an identity and everybody's phones should be like, hey, is this really my buddy's key when it comes through? And that is how phones should work. But they will never work that way. I mean, that's that's basically how I treat phone numbers. I like, I mean... I, first of all, the UX of like entering phone numbers is really broken. And I say this as a person who does not use phones very often at all. But like the times that I have used Signal, for example, and I had to put someone's phone number in and you have to like figure out, oh, well, international code, country code, blah, blah, blah. Like the phone, I, I don't know. Phone numbers are just really dumb to me. Like there's, they're so easy to fuck up that I, I just hate using them. Like I have to like actually, I almost feel like there should just be a QR code for, or some, like a QR code would be a better identifier than a phone number because I just, I hate these things. They're so, I just don't, just don't use phones. Phones suck. You're, the whole internet is broken. Also, I find it like, I mean, it's kind of similar to bank accounts. Like, the 
all of the hurdles that you have to go through nowadays, unless you go to shops that don't do this, but the number of hurdles you have to go through to like just get a SIM card is just bizarre. Like, and there's there's still banks in the world that when you're opening a bank account, you like they ask for information that they don't need and they also have requirements that appear really stupid like there's some banks that literally say you can't sign up with us unless you already have a bank account somewhere else the weirdest industry ever like can you imagine if you go to a grocery store and they're like sorry you can't shop here unless you're already a customer of our competitor like it makes it just makes no sense and apparently the reason for this sometimes in banking is because they don't have enough money to do compliance if you're if they're a little bank they don't have enough money to do compliance and so they basically have this requirement of you having to have already gotten a bank account somewhere else because then they know oh you're safe because you've been hacked by them like it's just i don't know i find phones and banking to be so outdated like the the, the people who say that like regular bank accounts are easy to use i mean i guess my brain has just been warped too much by bitcoin because i have never found bitcoin difficult to use nearly as much as bank accounts it's not warped at all the same way that bitcoin takes all that bullshit and turns it into an app on your phone like all of the same shit is possible for things like phone numbers, like your cellular network. There is no reason why a cell network should not just be a totally open thing with just like anonymized auth credentials to physically connect to the network. There is no reason why your phone number can't be a key that you securely manage that you hand out to people. They actually verify that. When, when you're calling their phone, it's sending along a signature, hey, this is really me. And, and no, no centralized directory, just your phone verifies that. There is no reason that all of the types of shit Bitcoin does to the stupid like world of finance and banking regulations, you can't apply other technologies to things like cellular communications and phones. It's just they don't want to give up the centralized silo and the control that brings. Yep. Pretty fuckers. Alrighty, though. Are we ready for a stroll down summary lane? Yes. So, a little late as far as when the paper dropped, um, but Music 2 has officially uh, been specced out and released by Blockstream. And this is a very nice thing in terms of the ability to um, either do an interactive setup or um, do interactive signing. And depending on which one of those you choose, um, there's no interaction required in the other. So to kind of put the whole um, progress of Musig in context, um, the original spec effectively required a, uh, a counter that clients would have to track and losing that could result in private key leaks because that counter 
was what actually um, guaranteed that a malicious member in a multi-sig couldn't switch their nonce out um, while you reuse yours and thereby get two signatures that would allow them to figure out your private key. And that is very bad for a whole host of reasons, such as if you lose that number, um, you can very much um, get tricked into signing things and lose all of your coins. Um, enter musig deterministic knots. Um, they generated and came up with a whole new function um, for nonce generation to create a zero knowledge based um, scheme where you would effectively exchange um, your actual multi-sig keys with everybody, but then also a nonce key. Um, and this function was specifically designed so that um, when deriving nonces, you can actually generate a zero knowledge proof that isn't too unwieldy. Um, to prove you did that correctly. And this requires tracking no state or numbers of any kind, um, but it requires playing with zero knowledge proofs. And so that is really good in the sense of there's no more losing something and you can get tricked. Well, enter musig2. Um, pretty much the, the general trick here is instead of having one nonce source, everybody has two. And then the way to generate um, the global nonce for the whole multi-sig transaction is effectively hashing all of the individual nonce pairs, um, the aggregate key that's signing things and the message and taking that value um, and kind of performing some fancy math with your two um, individual nonces to smush those together and smush the result of that into the big global nonce. And the trick here is that in that process, if anybody were to try to change out one of theirs or um, a subset of the, the nonces that go into creating the global one, then it changes the um, hash value of hashing the nonces, the multi-sig key, and the message that's being signed. And so um, like there, there's really um, kind of that uh, defense there in terms of somebody tweaking with things is going to change everything. Um, but you do have to kind of, you know, exchange nonce pairs in the creation of a multi-sig ahead of time. Um, and that's where the, the neat little um, trade-off comes in. Um, you can either do that exchange ahead of time interactively in um, the setup of the wallet, and then signing is effectively just pass around, spit out a signature, there's no interaction required. Or you can just take the uh, multi-sig keys, create a multi-sig from that, but then have to interact when signing um, in order to pass the nonces around. And so there's really a lot of design play there. And it, it's really just kind of, you know, nuts in totality to look at something like this and just look at how many different design trade-offs there are. The, like the different um, security mo uh, modes you can take, like how much state you have to track, whether you track state or not, that have little subtle implications for 
how that signing process is actually conducted and how expensive that signing process is versus other security trade-offs in that. And it's really just nuts to think that something as simple as multi-sig has really become this advanced. I mean, like, Ginny, you know, you're, what, what's the running joke about Ethereum and multi-sig? Uh, that Ethereum claims to be able to do smart contracts, and yet the multi-sig wallet is, like, one of the most basic smart contracts, and it can't even do that, right? Yep. And it's, like, just, like, the 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 fucking like flexibility of this like in terms of like you can do an interactive setup for non-interactive signing for anything that is involving air-gapped keys or if you want to just have the the quickest like signing operations possible or you can use something like Musig DN if you want to have that zero knowledge proof that like no shenanigans are going on with the nonces. And it's just like, you know, I mean, multi-sig is not just what's the, the numbers um, in N of N or M of N anymore. It's like, look at how nuanced like the trade-offs and the, the possibilities here are now. Suck it, mm -hmm. Ethereum. Don't you mean smoke it? Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll take that. So what else we got going on in terms of announcements of things dropping? Well, as you all may remember back in June, Nopara, Nothing Much, and Istvan uh, released the draft for a new variable amount Xiaomi and CoinJoin protocol called Wabi Sabi, uh, which they explained uh, is named after a Japanese term uh, for accepting the world, its imperfection, and finding beauty in this imperfection. And rather than trying to turn November 5th into KYC Day, like BitMEX, uh, the Wasabi team has instead released their timeline for the rollout of Wasabi Wallet 2.0 uh, with a, quote, combination of user interface, user experience, and coin join improvements, including the debut of WabiSabi. And something else they note in the list of changes is that uh, regarding user experience, manual coin joining will be a thing of the past or for power users only. So I guess there's going to be a lot of automation coming to that, which uh, will help uh, move Wasabi more towards, uh, I guess it's a new thing to say, the Peter McCormick wallet, um, <laughs> because it sounds like that's what... Uh, he would want and uh their timeline uh for when this new wasabi wallet will become available has various estimates um the most likely case that they give is nine months which would be next summer in june or july depending on when they uh see the start point the worst case deadline would be 14 months which is the new year of 2022 and that sounds really weird to be saying that. Uh, I can't believe we're already thinking of 2022. That's very weird. Um, but yeah, Wasabi 2.0 is now on a deadline schedule. Woo! Yeah, I I know. Um, at least with nothing much, like he has been putting a lot of thought into UX flow. Um, and especially like simplifying that and laying the work to be able to convey things like 
pay joins inside of coin joins and things to a normal user. And yeah, I am really looking forward to what comes out of that in the end, because that is a, that is kind of a tall order in terms of, uh, complex interactions that you need to boil down so that somebody like Peter can actually understand what he's doing. Yep. Alrighty. So this last little thing is honestly just a quick check-in. Um, and I don't know. I don't really think there's anything definitive to, to see here in terms of results, but, um, wait, you skip poem. What? Poem. Okay, poem. <laughs> well, the yeah. So if anyone didn't notice, it was the fifth of November recently, and in the last episode, I kind of complained about the fact that Bitmax had put their uh, user verification deadline on November fifth, and so when they tweeted out on the fourth that um, they were reminding people, "quote The vast majority of our users by volume have." completed user verification until 5th of November 2020 at and this is really confusing they said 00UTC which i it's not clear to me that would that would be midnight between November 4th and November 5th right uh, i or can't do, do that or do they mean midnight between November 5th and 6th? I'm assuming the former, but I don't. Honestly, this is why you don't put things at midnight, because that's a terrible idea. Anyway, so deadline was November 5th at some point. And so when they shared that, I wrote a little poem, which was, Remember, remember the 5th of November. Identity completion is fraught. I know of no reason why the KYC treason should ever we adopt. And of course, I did the obligatory thing of watching V for Vendetta on that day. Seriously, fuck those fuckers. It's like they stole Candyland from everybody. But I find it a much better thing to separate that Wasabi announced their timeline for Wasabi 2.0. That's a much better thing to have on that day. I agree. Now back to the scheduled programming. Hachoo. Deprogramming. That should be our new slogan. Back to the scheduled deprogramming. Yeah, 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 yeah. I dig it. I dig it. All right, though. As far as programming goes, the stupid Bermuda government token pilot program. Um, so Stable House, one of the partners in this, um, wrote a little uh, write up uh, at the end of last month. And pretty much just boiled down to um, summarizing the reasons for this again, and then just going into um, a little detail in terms of point of sale systems being passed out, actually being built on M5 stack devices. Um, they're, I think the name of it was, uh, they're the base for the Bowser uh, DIY hardware wallet, um, and a number of other fun uh, lightning point of sale uh, toys and stuff, but uh, hooked up to a BTC pay server instance. And um, pretty much the fact that in um, actually issuing the token, um, 
one of their requirements for this was it was only to be spendable at the uh, test merchants um, during the pilot program. And so they effectively just bypassed um, the standard block stream um, AMP controls as far as for uh, approval or disapproval conditions and just uh, filtered that through their own systems entirely and just manually um, called to the AMP instance um, uh, an approval or a failure um, based on funneling through their own criteria. So really nothing in here um, really looks at any of the economics or, or use levels or any kind of you know pilot users feedback or anything. But I just kind of wanted to touch on this a bit just in showing how simple um, this was for a small government like this to just bypass the default um, AMP restrictions that didn't fit their use cases and, you know, build their own filter to hook into AMP's API. Because what, what they've effectively done here is set up this BTC pay server instance, um, which in real time communicates with their um, approval software for the any signature, because this is all two of two multi-sig um, with this server enforcing restrictions, um, and kind of just seamlessly add um, merchants' addresses to the whitelist um, for the, the AMP server. And so it's just, you know, this was only a month or so ago, um, and they've already hacked together with open tools out there um, a completely controlled um, closed-loop token system on Liquid. And uh, yeah, that's pretty fast. And it's pretty interesting to me that they actually used all of these open tools um, you know, hardware, software projects that a lot of people use in this space to be as independent and self-sovereign with their use of Bitcoin as possible um, to effectively build a system that does the exact opposite with a fiat token. And like more importantly, how fast they were able to do that. So yeah, Liquid is just weirder and weirder in my mind looking at the polar opposite things that can exist on it. I'm surprised they didn't give it a catchy name like the Bermuda Triangle of DeFi. <laughs> I'm just kind of wondering how weird it is. Um, you know, like, what is it going to be like when you just have things like that coexisting with the polar opposite of it? Like, it, it's shit's going to get fucking weird this decade. Well, I guess uh, that's that's a wrap. So, beep boop, beep boop, thought load. Um. Well, my thought is kind of something. I don't. Act, I think this might have happened on the day that we recorded the last episode. But anyway, I I don't know why. I don't. I guess apparently there's a thing called the International Day to End Impunity for Crimes Against Journalists, which sounds like a very specific thing that doesn't exist. I have no idea if this is a real day or not. Probably not. Anyway, Mike Pompeo made a tweet where he said, Journalists perform a critical role in society, but they are too often threatened, attacked, or murdered. 
crimes that go unpunished, that often go unpunished. On International Day to end impunity for crimes against journalists, we call on all governments to investigate and redress these crimes. And the image says a free press is essential to an informed citizenry. And I would just like to say, like, this is the same guy who referred to WikiLeaks as a hostile foreign intelligence agency. And that is literally quoted in the frickin' indictment against Assange that he is fighting right now in the UK. So I would just like to say, fuck my Pompeo. I mean, seriously, fuck everyone in the US government at this point, but like, especially Mike Pompeo. And yeah, like, I... I am, this is not the first person, like, there seems to be this kind of trend of literally the people who do the most to target journalists and make journalists afraid to be actual journalists and do actual journalism instead of stenography, like most of them tend to do. And yeah, like, I think it was like the not the prime minister, but like the secretary of state in the UK did something similar where literally it, I, I think it was around the time that Assange was arrested last year. He was at a press freedom event and he, you know, it's just so bizarre that these people are literally the exact opposite of what they preach. And that's going to come into play even more in the next couple of months because you know, regardless of who ends up actually being president, who knows? It's probably going to be Biden. I don't know. Just because whatever the they're you know, <laughs> they've just decided to switch to the the Democrats, uh, Democratic war criminals instead of the Republican ones or the undecided whatever. And what's going to happen is that a bunch of people are going to be like, oh well. Trump's not the president anymore. That means that the case against WikiLeaks can't be politically motivated. Like, because part of the argument is that this is a politically motivated case by the Trump administration. And I find it unfortunate that there has been so much focus on the Trump administration's political bent and not just the general political bent of the US government and like a bunch of previous administrations put together has not been has not been focused on more broadly because the idea that Biden being the president is at all going to change the the overall um, agenda of the U.S. government against Assange and WikiLeaks is laughable um, because, like... You had Obama being the president who prosecuted more whistleblowers combined uh, than all of the previous administrations before him. And Trump has also been doing the same. Like, fundamentally, these people are not different. I do not expect, I'm not going to wait for pardons from them because fundamentally they're not any different to me. Like, these, these presidencies are indistinguishable to me from that point of view because they're all targeting journalists because fundamentally the structures of power doesn't matter who's sitting at the top what puppet you have they are all threatened by actual journalists doing actual journalism and that will continue to be the case as long as we have a state especially one that works like the u.s government does so it's going to be an interesting couple of months coming up
I think it's going to get even weirder than that. Um, what what better way to usher in the post-truth era um, than just create two alternate realities with different presidents? Well, I don't know if uh, people can handle that. Uh, it would be... I mean, if you're talking about like the U.S. splitting into... Uh, factions or I don't know maybe states will actually become states and have some say in how they govern themselves which hasn't really been the case so far uh something that will be really interesting from my point of view in this topic is there was an article in lawfare blog about uh the ability of Trump to sell national security secrets uh before or after he leaves as president and that he might use this kind of ability as a threat to keep the presidency and um as jonathan rauch put it uh he said isn't it surreal that we even need to ponder this question and i find it amazing that that question can even be pondered like because basically it it comes down to that the president is the in the U.S., is the person who determines what information is classified and what is not. He's considered the ultimate authority on that. So there's this, like, open question of, well, if he's the ultimate authority on that, couldn't he technically declassify a bunch of things that are of interest to other countries or actors, whoever they may be for whatever reasons? I find that to be amazing, considering we... considering that the U.S. government is literally willing to put someone away in prison for, and multiple, well, multiple people, willing to put multiple people in prison for decades, if not the rest of their life, for giving the same kind of information to the public with the goal of reforming and preventing criminal activity. And yet the president has the ability to potentially just declassify a bunch of stuff regardless and even sell it as a way to keep power. Like, Ginny, that you just, is insane. You just proved, I think, my entire point about two alternate realities because I have never even seen that considered brought up, but I have seen declassifying things that are of interest to the American people in terms of corruption. And that's what I mean. Like it's it's like every single point that is brought up, there is instantly a branch in reality where one side is interpreting it in a wildly different way than the other at this point and just trying to spin the narrative around it. And it's like every single thing going on right now, that's what's happening. But yeah, I mean, connected to the Pompeo thing, it's just amazing to me that, like, on the one hand, you have these people in the U.S. government who are claiming that they want to end impunity, and at the same time, they might use their own impunity to keep power. Like, it's, this is all just, it's so bizarre to me that this that this is what people find acceptable that people are fighting over the red and blue goldman sachs and yet like 
this is the system you're endorsing. This is the system that you you're implicitly consenting to when you have these debates is like you think that whoever wins in that debate matters and it's the completely wrong debate to be even having. I think we are far beyond that at this point and just what people are going to believe and how they're going to act. And it's just like, this is why I have been almost entirely quiet on everything since election day. And I'm not running around screaming on Twitter like 90% of people is because this is an actual fog of war now. Everything is being spun polar opposite ways by each side. Everything is being brought up just to do that. Like, this is really kind of scary. Like, I consider myself a pretty intelligent person that can dig to the bottom of shit pretty quickly. And everywhere I look, um, that's not so easy to do right now on anything. Well, if it makes... uh anyone else who does still believe in the system any better and does get anxiety around election day specifically um i would just like you to know that the anxiety that you feel around election day about your life feeling like it hinges on who does or does not win the office of the president that's how i feel every day (laughs) about just living under systems like this in general so if you felt like you've lost your mind watching this catastrophe, um, yep, welcome to the club. I'm just saying I don't see a resolution here um, where everybody agrees on the outcome. I see an attempt at one and a repeat of this summer down the line. You know what? It would be really funny because uh, there's been this kind of running joke over the past couple of days, especially about like... Um, where where's the voting machine node and is the election uh is the the ballot counting software open source and it's like guys <laughs> that uh that's just fundamentally not going to happen i can't see that happening like the idea the idea that they're going to give you the power to verify whether an election decision was legitimate like are you, like people seem to think that this I don't know. I mean, this is kind of a very long outro where we're talking about something not Bitcoin, but the idea, like, the chances of them giving you the ability to verify election results is about as likely as the chance of them giving you the power to verify the money supply of the U.S. dollar. Like, they are very, they are different things, but they are very similar, and there's a reason that you're not able to do stuff like that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, I don't know. Unless you got anything else to add, uh, I think we should just round this off here uh, before we have an entire hour on politics. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, strap in for the shit show of the the last bit of the year, punks. We'll catch you next week. And in the true American tradition, Merry Christmas. Eel <laughs> <laughs>